Hello, and thank you for listening to the Compassionate Conservative podcast series by the Ego Free Press. My name is Miranda, and in each episode, I will be talking about different ways to approach social justice issues and ideas from a conservative standpoint. Today's episode is all about gun control. This conversation is framed very differently depending on a person's priority when balancing public safety and Second Amendment rights, and there's a lot of talking past each other and getting caught up in debates that don't necessarily move us forward. I've done my absolute best to do good research on the facts about gun violence, effectiveness of gun control policies, and solutions that everyone can agree on. Prepping for this episode was a little different for me because I found a lot of information that I didn't know beforehand and honestly wasn't expecting to find, so let's get into it. Gun control usually comes up after horrible mass shooting events that spark a ton of media coverage and social movements, and this is what we hear about the most. But in reality, that's a small fraction of the total gun violence, and I think it's important to look at all kinds of gun violence in context to get a fuller picture of it in our country. But let's just start with mass shootings, which are typically defined as four or more people, not including the shooter, being killed in one incident, although the data I'm about to share use a definition of three or more. According to research done at the University of Missouri-Columbia, there have been 112 mass shootings between 1980 and 2020. They have become more frequent over time, though it fluctuates from year to year. Also, 87% of those who committed a mass shooting obtained their gun legally, and 93% bought the gun in the same state the mass shooting was committed. This seems pretty bleak. Mass shootings are horrible events, and we obviously want to prevent and reduce them as much as possible. But now let's think about this as part of the bigger picture. Mass shootings are pretty rare among all gun crime and deaths. In 2019, 417 people died in mass shootings, 10,258 people were murdered by gun, and 23,941 people committed suicide by gun. Some common beliefs about mass shootings aren't necessarily true either. For example, NPR reported that while mass shooting events have been increasing, the number of mass shootings in schools are not. Schools are actually much safer now than they were in the 90s. However, our awareness of them is much greater today, and we have been led to believe that school shootings are more common because of that. Another common belief is that no other country experiences mass shootings the way we do in America, but evidence doesn't really support that. Between the years of 2009 and 2015, there were 529 deaths from mass shootings in the United States. However, France, in only 2015, had 532 deaths from mass shootings. When ranking countries by deaths due to public mass shootings per million people between 2009 and 2015, Norway is number one, France is number three, and Switzerland, Finland, and Belgium are seven, eight, and nine, respectively, with the U.S. at number 11. Now, of course, I have to be fair, and the number of deaths is different from how many mass shootings occur, but even then, we have similar results. When looking at the frequency of public mass shootings between 2009 and 2015 per million people, the U.S. is number 12, France is number 11, and Switzerland, Norway, Finland, and Belgium are 4, 5, 7, and 8, respectively. Other countries like Canada and England are only 3 or 4 spots behind the U.S. in both metrics. Even though it may seem like it, this information in no way minimizes the reality of mass shootings and how tragic they are, and that is not what I'm trying to do. Any normal human being feels deeply for the victims and their families, and they feel the fear and uncertainty that sweeps across the country in the aftermath. It doesn't matter what their politics are. My family and I have always been very conservative, but I also remember my mom telling me to sit close to an exit in movie theaters and having conversations with my friends about our relief to graduate high school before experiencing anything like that. 
But here's the thing. Conservatives, despite having those feelings, fight back against using that emotion to push an agenda which we believe would cause bigger problems down the line. Conservatives are not against gun control laws just because we are Second Amendment worshippers who care more about our gun collections than human lives. The way I see it is that gun control is ideally supposed to protect us, but if it fails to do so and we gave up the guns we could have used to protect ourselves, then we are worse off than we were in the first place. So we have to ask ourselves, do gun control policies really work and are conservatives just getting in the way of saving lives? Or are conservatives right that gun control would just take away our rights without making us any safer? Let's talk about some typical gun control policies and their true effectiveness in addressing mass shootings and other gun violence. The same research from the University of Missouri-Columbia looked at four gun control laws and their effects on mass shootings, background checks, assault weapon bans, high-capacity magazine bans, and red flag laws. Controlling for other factors that contribute to mass shootings, they found that red flag laws had no effect, and combining statewide background checks with bans of assault weapons and high-capacity magazines reduced mass shootings by about one every six years, with no change in the number of deaths. That's not very promising, but let's also look at their effectiveness in preventing other types of gun violence. A different study done at Boston University, which analyzed 10 different gun laws between 1991 and 2016, suggests that the most effective gun laws in preventing gun homicide are about who has a gun as opposed to what kinds of guns are available. They pointed to maybe three laws in particular. Universal background checks associated with a 15% decrease, bans on violent offenders from owning guns associated with an 18% decrease, and possibly may issue laws. I use possibly and maybe in regards to the may issue laws because these laws were not actually analyzed. The study looked at shall issue laws. The difference is if you complete all the requirements for a gun permit, you will definitely get one in a shall issue state. But authorities can use more discretion in granting that permit or not in a may issue state. Shall issue laws were associated with a 9% increase in gun homicide, and it was in a supplemental policy brief that may issue laws were offered as an intuitive other approach, but it wasn't proven. They also looked at gun laws that can reduce gun suicide rates and found that two had some correlation. The first is banning the sale of junk guns, which are handguns that do not meet certain safety requirements, associated with a 6.4% reduction of suicide. The other is permitless carry laws, which were associated with a 5.1% increase. However, the study also said that these measures failed the falsification test and they did not find consistent relationships between any laws and suicide rates. The other laws analyzed in this study were assault weapon bans, high-capacity magazine bans, a 21-year-old age limit, stand-your-ground laws, and prohibiting gun trafficking, all of which had no significant correlation with homicide or suicide rates. Reading the whole report only takes a few minutes, so I highly recommend looking at it if you're interested in the specific details, but overall, I like this study. I am convinced that these are accurate correlations. However, they were also clear that the weaknesses of this study make it impossible to prove causation and that further research is needed for that to be determined. I have to admit, a big part of me is thinking I told you so, finding real research that shows that a lot of gun control policies make almost no difference. However, it feels a little unfair to be so stubborn in my opinion that gun control doesn't work when it seems like some policies do. Those laws don't have what I would consider to be amazing decreases in gun violence, and they still come with concerns about the Second Amendment, which would need to be discussed. But at the very least, I'm willing to learn about and consider these laws, and it seems like a good place to start with productive research and debate. After all, I want to save lives too, and if it works, it works.
Despite my optimism, I doubt there will be any amazing bipartisan action anytime soon. On the bright side, there are a lot of variables that affect gun violence which have nothing to do with guns, and that have much more potential for quick, effective, and long-lasting bipartisan action. I'm going to mention a few that I think are the most interesting or have the most potential for bipartisan support, but it is by no means a comprehensive list. One place to start is with the police force, and hear me out on this. Everyone has their own opinion on whether having more police officers reduces crime, and there's a lot of contradictory research that makes it hard to prove it one way or another. However, there is a lot of research to support that it may not be how many cops there are, but making sure that they're being used wisely. I found an interesting article from the Marshall Project, which goes in-depth about the Memphis Police Department with some of the things they do and don't that could make them more efficient in reducing crime. Some suggestions are making sure that police departments are mapping and analyzing shooting trends and deploying officers to hotspots where there are uptakes in violence. The Memphis PD had seven times as many officers per square mile in the downtown tourist areas versus the more violent areas of the city. They remapped patrol areas to address this to some extent but still don't focus on hotspots. It also talked about outsourcing some services to other city departments, private security firms, or even civilians. We hear this a lot in relation to mental health calls, which I think most people support to some extent, but that's not how it was brought up in this article. Apparently, Memphis police officers spend a lot of time responding to calls about vicious dogs that could be handled by animal control. They also reinstated a program where they train and hire high school graduates to respond to minor traffic accidents. This way, police officers can shift more of their efforts on preventing and responding to violent crime, as well as getting to know the people in the communities they serve instead of constantly chasing 911 calls. This seems like common sense to me, and police departments can make changes that respond to their specific community's needs the way these are specific to Memphis. I would also like to add that police departments can make changes like this, still be short-staffed, and need to hire more. But it certainly encourages departments to be smarter about how many they really need to hire. The Memphis PD was continuously trying to hire officers who did not meet state standards just for the sake of hiring more, and that seems like a recipe for disaster. Another recommendation is what are called threat assessment teams to specifically tackle shootings. A threat assessment team is made up of a variety of people who work together to analyze the possible need for intervention in order to prevent an act of violence. These teams have mostly been implemented in schools, but they can also be used in police departments and corporate settings. This seems to have had a lot of success in Virginia, which mandated threat assessment teams in schools after the 2013 Virginia Tech shooting. There are usually a lot of little signs that make people wary, but from multiple sources like professors or residents life staff. One small thing a professor notices wouldn't be enough to assume the possibility of a large crisis. But when you put together all the concerns from multiple people, it suddenly seems very obvious. What we want to do is find the obvious before something happens, not after like we typically do. There are some concerns over privacy and the possibility of being labeled as a threat before you have done anything wrong, and I think these are valid concerns. A report from the National Institute for Justice talks about how to ask for medical records to better understand the challenges a person is facing, and that feels weird to me. But states can outline the specific criteria that threat assessment teams can use, so I think there is room to prevent concerning breaches of privacy. I also think it's important to highlight that these teams are not meant to discipline people, but to give them the necessary support before something like a shooting ever becomes a possibility. 56% of the threat assessment cases in the 2017-2018 school year were about self-harm only. With suicide being the largest portion of gun violence, mental health is a huge part of prevention, and this seems to address that aspect of it pretty well. 
I also found some interesting suggestions about using our healthcare system to reduce gun violence. For example, when patients enter emergency rooms, nurses and doctors usually ask questions about drug abuse or domestic violence, not to judge the patient or report it to authorities, but to determine how best to care for them and offer support if they ask for it. A video by Big Think with the CEO of Northwell Health suggests asking questions about their possible exposure to gun violence. Questions like, are any guns in your home safely secured, or have you heard gunshots in your neighborhood, could give patients the opportunity to disclose any fears they may have and ask for help before it's too late. Another idea is allowing pediatricians to speak with families about gun safety the same way they may talk about safely storing medications. Some children as young as three years old can have enough strength to pull the trigger of a gun. I think that if a pediatrician wants to discuss keeping guns safely stored away from their children as part of a general child safety talk, they absolutely should. Along those lines, education is such an important aspect of reducing gun violence. I place incredibly high importance on gun safety, proper use, and responsible ownership. I believe that anyone and everyone should take a class on it at least once, whether or not you think you will ever buy a gun. Because of this, some suggest making these classes mandatory for purchasing a gun. While I really support the reasoning and intention behind that, I'm a little weary of the mandatory part. Who would be responsible for creating those courses and setting the requirements? Would the requirements be at the whim of whoever's in office and used to make it almost impossible to complete it and own a gun? These are things that we might be able to address in the language of legislation or fight in the courts, but it does make me hesitate to fully support the idea. I think a way to compromise on this would be by giving incentives to offer and take those classes instead of mandating it. I also think we should encourage gun education in schools. Just like how schools have classes or programs to talk about drug and alcohol abuse, I think it would be smart for schools to bring in people who can share facts and figures about gun violence, tips for talking with their families about gun safety, and what they should do if they ever find a gun. Again, I wouldn't mandate it, but some states already allow for schools to have gun safety education and districts can decide if and how they want to implement it. The last thing I'll bring up is this idea of using smart technology and guns to make them safer. There are a few companies developing pistols with fingerprint scans or pin codes to ensure that only authorized users are handling that weapon. Some of these models are already going to come to the market this year in 2022. The companies creating them talk about how these smart guns can be used by police officers, gun owners with children, new gun owners, or anyone else who wants that extra layer of security to prevent it from getting into the wrong hands. Some people are concerned that the technology could fail when it is necessary to be able to shoot that gun. That is probably more of a concern with police officers, but for individuals, that is just something to take into consideration when deciding which gun works best for them. Another big concern is the possibility of legislation that would ban all other guns that aren't smart guns, and I don't think that's far-fetched at all. If this technology takes off, I completely expect Robert Francis O'Rourke and every other politician like him to advocate for that in full force. The best thing I can think of in response to that is just to cross that bridge when we get there. I don't think the possibility of future gun control battles minimizes the benefits that having it as an option can provide. There are a lot more ideas out there, and it's going to be an all-of-the-above approach to reduce gun violence. There is not one thing that will solve this problem, and we should all be willing to keep an open mind and constantly look for things we can do as individuals, communities, businesses, schools, and governments that can make a difference. 
You can visit our website, theeaglefreepress.com, to find this episode posted with links to all of the sources I used. It feels like I talked about a lot, but this is really just scratching the surface. My goal here was to cut through all of the talking points and narrow down the discussion to what I think is a better foundation for understanding the issue, where we can work together despite our disagreements, and as always, to challenge people on both sides to think about the issue a little differently. We are in the business of starting real conversations, so contact us through our website by sending an email or commenting on our post with any questions or comments. If you like this episode, make sure to follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Google Podcast, download it for later, and share it with others. Also, please subscribe to the Eagle Free Press and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter to stay up to date with our latest content. Thank you for listening. Thank you.